This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people saying, no thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. And good afternoon, good afternoon to the beautiful city of London. I'm Charlie Pellick, and I just said I love London. You're listening to The Cable Live on DAB Digital Radio. Just gone 5 o'clock in the city of London. Let's get a quick update on what's happening with markets. FTSE 100 today up, and up uh, Wednesday here, up by uh, 1%, 73.38 on the FTSE 100 index, higher by 70 points. The Caccaron out of Paris up by 24 points, higher by 4 tenths of 1%. And uh, we had uh, the DAX in Germany up 90 points. Uh, that was a gain of 7 tenths of 1%. Midday in U.S. trading, green on the screen here. We've got the S&P 500 index still below 3,000 at 2,992, up 12, a gain of 4 tenths of 1%. The Dow advancing 103, up by 4 tenths of 1%. And NASDAQ higher by 63 points, up by 8 tenths of 1%. We are awaiting the ECB decision, also waiting the latest developments on trade. China is keeping up the pressure on American farmers. Beijing announcing a range of U.S. products that will be exempted from 25% extra tariffs put in place last year, but major agricultural items such as soybeans and pork are not included. Bloomberg spoke earlier to the editor of China's most prominent state-run newspaper. Let's not think of it as a concession. It's a goodwill gesture that shows China is confident. It's different from a concession. Top Chinese trade negotiators will be traveling to Washington for talks in the coming week. Joining us now to talk about trade and the broader market backdrop is Alistair McCaig, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth. Alistair, thank you very much for carving out time uh, late in your day on this Wednesday. Much appreciated. Well, listen, the conventional wisdom is that everybody needs a deal, everybody wants a deal. So why, in your view, don't we have a deal? Uh, evening, Charlie. Um, well, look, uh, I think in both of these leaders, they, they have felt uh, the need to um, uh, certainly appear to, uh, in, in Trump's case, the voting public, um, strong and authoritarian. Um, and uh, fundamentally, he is tackling a, an issue which, quite frankly, many other countries globally wish that they had the ability to tackle. The way in which he's doing it is maybe not the, the style with which many would want, but nonetheless, it is, a, it is an issue that needs to be rectified. And the flip side of that coin, of course, is we're fundamentally asking China to change pretty dramatically how they have done business for the, well over the, the last couple of decades. Um, and implementing such large-scale changes to structure and, and business manners uh, is not uh, and was not ever going to be an easily, quickly achieved process. Um, and I think that's probably why we, we've seen this drag on. If you were Europe, if you were the United Kingdom, and if definitely you are China negotiating with the United States, how does U.S. presidential politics play into all of this? Because after all, could it just turn into a waiting game? Um, I think it does play its part in that. Um, it's, um, it's, it's an important issue in the background, and we've seen previously, certainly by the, the way that the EU has handled things, targeting what would be seen as political uh, targets inside the U.S. 
is, is something that they've looked at as far as um, uh, Trump heartlands uh, and, and uh, where exactly they can get um, the most uh, amount of pressure to, to be felt on, on him. I think looking into the, 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 um, the sort of future, we've got to be conscious that the uh, uh, that, uh, President Xi Jinping in uh, China, time is certainly on his side in that regard. He has no pressures uh, about re-elections and he'll be conscious of what is going to be perceived to be the, the need or the desire to have a win in the run-up to, to uh, assuming President Trump goes in for uh, another, uh, another term. Do you think the Chinese, though, might be making a major error if they thought that they could wait out President Trump, assuming that he didn't get re-elected and perhaps get a better deal from the Democrats? Um, I think that uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a difficult t- task to, to do, to wait it out, um, and it's, it's a heck of a gamble, um, because I think right here and now, uh, if President Trump were to run again, certainly from my view over here in Europe, I think he's in with a decent chance of, of getting re-elected again. Um, uh, and um, I don't think that, that it's certainly not the, um, the expectations of him uh, failing uh, to, to get a second term aren't high enough, I think, from a global view, uh, that that's a, a, a prudent course of action. I think they should be looking at this very much with this is the man we're going to have to deal with, and, and even if it rolls on to another 6, 12, 18 months, it's still going to likely to be the man we're going to have to deal with. Yeah, Alistair, if you were buying a car or perhaps a home from either the the United States negotiating parties or the Chinese negotiating parties, would you want to deal with either party? <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd be scanning the, the local bus timetable um, to, uh, to source a more reliable um, uh, means of transport, I suspect. Um, I, look, I, I think... Um, the, the negotiating teams uh, in China are probably more stable in regards to their personnel um, and probably more stable in regards to the, um, the oversight that they have from uh, President Xi Jinping um, in comparison to the U.S., where I suspect that um, you know, direction and steerage from President Trump may well be uh, more of a, a movable feast. Well, it was a leading question, and you can probably see where I'm going with this. How then does reliability and trust play into all of this? Um, well, it, it, is, uh, it is, I guess, one of these aspects whereby um, once things move into um, hard and fast packs and agreements, these are not easily reversible. Um, and I think that um, the trust aspect is, is going to be that once the U.S. Uh, or, or China, for that matter, puts down in, in, in legal terminology what they're, they're committed to doing, I think it's very difficult for them to just quickly um, reverse that. So I, I guess trust is, is, a, is a key component of both of these. Uh, both of these, and you know, we are we are ultimately looking for change. That's what we really want to see. And I think as as long as we get to see some sort of change out of China um, in their in their methodology, um, then I think that that'll be the. The, the linchpin for, for ensuring that the, the, the trust is kept on both sides. Now, is it fair to say that when there is a positive tweet on trade, markets go up? When there is a negative tweet, markets go down? Not talking about European markets, specifically the U.S. markets. Uh, it does It does have a part to play in it. I mean, we've seen, um, uh, you know, a number of tweets um, in regards to... Um, uh, National Security Advisor today uh, out of the U.S., and you've seen the, the instantaneous reaction of, of oil prices in the aftermath of it. Uh, yes, uh, a Trump tweet does have the ability to move markets, and it's been a, a major driver of intraday volatility. Um, 
But I, you know, I think it, it only goes so far. Yeah, and with the latest Trump administration departure yesterday, John Bolton out as National Security Advisor. How do how do Europeans? And it's 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 bad to lump everybody together. So let me just bring it down to uh, Alistair McCaig. How would you characterize the Trump administration with what's happening with all of the personnel changes? Um, it, it does it does beg the question as to who is. Who has the, the president's ear? How much guidance he takes from from everybody, and um, and and where we're going? I've got to say that the departure of Bolton, I don't see as a as a negative. I thought he was too hard line, and I think that might might ultimately re- result in in a, a softer stance across the board. He wasn't directly involved in Chinese negotiations, but maybe that sort of. Um, that sentiment that he brought to, to the administration yeah. o- might be eased a little bit. Only a few seconds left here, very briefly, please. But is that why we're seeing the drop in oil prices today, looking at Brent down 1.8 percent, uh, WTI down 2 percent? Yeah, very much. His, his, Mr. Bolton's stance on, on Iran and the sanctions there uh, were looked opposed to what President Trump has. And there's expectations we might see some sort of easing on uh, the stance towards Iran. All right, Alistair, stay with us. Get yourself a cup of tea. We have got uh, a focus on the ECB coming up next as the cable continues live here on DAB. Charlie Pellet with you in for Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson. Good to be with you. This is Bloomberg on DAB. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. We're glad to be here, Charlie Peloton, uh, DAB, as we take a look at what's happening not only in U.S. markets, European markets, specifically the ECB. We get the announcement tomorrow, Mario Draghi. Uh, uh, we will find out uh, tomorrow for sure just what he plans to do. We've got Alistair McCaig with us, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth. Alistair, the other major story, by the way, just before we get to the ECB, got to ask very briefly for a general comment uh, on a major ex- exchange deal out of Hong Kong today. We've got the London uh, Stock Exchange uh, uh, trying to fend off Hong Kong exchanges and clearings, $36.6 billion bid for uh, that marketplace. Your thoughts on Hong Kong ownership potentially of London Stock Exchange Group? I've got to say the timing of this surprises me somewhat. Um, both, um, Both Hong Kong itself going through some tumultuous times at the moment. And quite frankly, as far as the London Stock Exchange is concerned, you'd have to say there's still question marks over exactly um, how the city of London and therefore the attractiveness of London on a global sense for international entities to get themselves quoted there is going to pan out in the years ahead if Brexit does materialise or not. So um, from a timing point of view, somewhat surprised uh, from a, a, a business point of view and a trading point of view, um, it is a it is a worthwhile asset to uh, to acquire. I agree with you uh, so much there. One of the things, though, that you like when you are making an investment is to have some degree of certainty, some degree of predictability, uh, some degree of stability. And as you point out, LSE is dealing with Brexit and also, to the rapidly unfolding situation in Hong Kong. A lot of moving parts. Yeah, too, too, too many for, for me to feel completely comfortable about the, the idea if, if I was uh, to be part of the decision-making team that uh, decided on this one. Yeah, all right. Looking ahead to the ECB, uh, your expectations mm-hmm. coming out of uh, the meeting when we get the announcement tomorrow morning? 
Well, this is going to be Mario Draghi's penultimate meeting, um, and I guess there's two angles that I, I would look at this, is that we're, we're expecting a downgrade um, on, on the ECB's expectation um, uh, for, the, for the European Union, as far as growth is concerned. Uh, we're, we're perilously close to uh, a recessionary environment as far as the German economy is concerned, and it's certainly one of the tasks of a central bank to try and lead, guide, and steer economies in the right direction. And I think uh, waiting any longer to take some sort of tangible action to help this market would be foolhardy. And I think that um, we're quite likely to see uh, two courses of action here, uh, an increase to the negative interest rates, and that could well be tiered, and that, that may well slightly help European banks. And I think the second course of action is, is quite likely to be accompanied with that, a twofold. Um, some sort of asset purchasing uh, looks likely to, to, to reappear, whether that's exactly the same style of quantitative easing or not. That seems the most likely course. And it's also worth remembering, just in the background, because this is Mario Draghi's penultimate uh, meeting, we, uh, we are going to see Christine Lagarde take over. It'll be about November time. And would it be the best thing to, to throw at her that her first course of action ends up being a, 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 an interest rate change and also possibly the reinstigation of quantitative easing? It might be better for the, um, the smoothness of transition if Mario Draghi takes this on, onto his shoulders. Would you agree, though, if there was anybody qualified to make that call, it would be the e- incoming ECB president? I mean, she's got the chops, No. Uh, it seems highly likely, um, and I do think uh, it, it is a good fit. She's well-regarded, well-respected, and, and let's face it, her background for the, for the last number of years is effectively troubleshooting problematic economic uh, countries. So uh, moving into the EU, she should feel right at home. All right. I want to thank you very much uh, for speaking with us today. Certainly appreciate your time at the end of your day. And also, too, just to clarify, the ECB announcement coming in the morning in the United States, certainly uh, early afternoon in the United Kingdom. Alistair, always a pleasure. Alistair McKay, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth. Coming up as we continue uh, right here on the cable, it's the Wednesday edition, taking a closer look at Amazon.com and its antitrust investigation by American regulators. You're listening to The Cable on DAB, U.S. Stocks Higher Across the Board. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. We are back, eager to be back. Charlie Pellett with you. Amazon, the target of an antitrust investigation by American regulators. Bloomberg has learned the Federal Trade Commission has started interviewing small businesses that sell products on the world's largest online retailer. Investigators want to find out if Amazon is using its market power to hurt competition. And earlier today, our Tom Keene and Paul Sweeney spoke with Eileen Burbage, who is a partner at Passion Capital. They discussed Amazon and Apple's new products. I do think what the regulators are looking at is to make sure that Amazon isn't sort of inappropriately exerting its influence on smaller merchants. So Tide or P&G, I mean, they're probably going to be okay. They can kind of hold their own. They can negotiate what will be, I guess, business, you know, standard terms, market practice, market rates. But if you're a sort of an up-and-coming independent retailer, you've got you know, a new sort of bio-friendly laundry detergent, laundry soap, 
and you want to be on the Amazon marketplace too, who's to say that you're going to be able to get the same terms that P&G can get? And I think that's what the regulators are taking a look at. So, Eileen, we've certainly, I think, seen, heard, felt over the last year, year and a half, the U.S. regulators, U.S. congressional leaders taking maybe a, a harder look at some of the big U.S. tech companies. How concerned are you that the tide may be changing and that the U.S. may be taking a heavier regulatory hand to Silicon Valley? Yeah, I'm not too concerned. I think actually this is to be expected. I think uh, tech companies, but also a lot of um, sectors that are influenced by innovation and by data, probably had a little bit of a a slack or a free ride for maybe a bit too long as the regulators caught up to sort of understand some of these implications and why they might need to look at protecting consumers' interests a little bit more ardently. I think there were a lot of companies that probably also figured, you know, with the president that we've got in the White House, perhaps regulation wasn't going to be as uh, much of a problem or much of a burden for them. And I think it's about time there's been a little bit of scrutiny. The question is how far the pendulum is going to swing and whether or not they're going to take actions that are just for perception or signaling and not actually practically beneficial to anybody. That would be a problem. Right. So, Eileen, it was another busy day in Cupertino yesterday. Tim Cook and others on stage uh, trotting out some of the newer products and services. What was your takeaway from kind of what you saw and uh, and heard from uh, the good folks at Apple? Um, I've got a few takeaways. One of them was that, you know, it's really interesting that they're they're finally coming down a bit on price points, and they're probably acknowledging that maybe being at the highest end, I mean extreme high end of the market, isn't maybe going to help them continue to grow their market share. So they've come down on price point. Buying a brand-new iPhone 11 is going to be cheaper than when you, you know, had to buy the iPhone X or the XR. They still have a premium for customers like myself that will be buying in the U.K. or anyone in China, for example. So that will be interesting to watch because I do think they, they heavily rely on what's happening in China. Yeah. Uh, similarly, I saw the emphasis on services, and I think continued push on recurring yeah. revenue is really, really key. Uh, you know, I, I'll be honest, folks. I did this experiment with Paul today. I did the thing where you sign up to get ready for September 13th. And I, I want to think, can I thank McKinnon in Millinocket, Maine? She's like totally touchy earth green, and she said, go with the midnight green. So I went with the midnight green color. Eileen, this is the most brilliant pricing I've ever seen. There's this delusion in your world that Apple's a luxury evil brand because it's 1100 bucks a month. That's baloney. We're buying this like we buy a cable TV subscription. Well, you're, buy, you're going to buy Apple TV Plus like you're buying cable TV now, and that's actually what's affecting Netflix, Disney, and Roku. The phone sets are a different matter. I think there is this dichotomy between people who appreciate function and probably have had these camera features, the extended battery life, not even extended, but, you know, reasonable battery life in Android phones for months, if not longer, and Apple decides to roll them out and charge, I don't know, two or three times as much, and they're going to sell it a whole bunch. Yeah, but they're, they're, they're doing this at 40 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month, maybe 75 bucks a month tops. That's not an $1,100 purchase psychologically, is it? No, it's not. And that's what they're gambling on. And then what they're going to try and tack on are, oh, you get a free year of Apple TV Plus, or you're going to get a free year of Apple Arcade. And they're really <laughs> trying to get you hooked on those services that you're going to pay for beyond okay, the handset. We, we're going to stop the show right now. Sweeney's expert on this. What in God's name is Apple Arcade? Oh, it's, you're not a gamer, Tom? I'm oh, not a gamer, uh, but how are, gonna, on here. how are they going to compete with the adults of gamers? Because uh, they, they have billions of devices <laughs> out there, and they feel like they can just go out and get the content. So, you know, Eileen, 
Tom brings up a good point. I mean, you know, the Apple TV, you know, I thought what was interesting about that was the price point of $499, undercutting everybody. Um, do you think Apple is really serious about the content, the video content business um, going forward? I think they're serious. I think this is a pretty serious opening for them. I think the question is how much they're going to back it up. So obviously their catalog or their content material is not, you know, at all uh, similar to the volume that's on, on any of the other services. So the question will be if they're going to continue to invest in original programming or if they're going to start to syndicate other people's programs and if they're going to try and develop the volume that other people have um, and the sort of other companies of, of whose stock they affected yesterday. Eileen, you're a great student of London. The time we've got left, I really want to talk about the future of the city. You've been a follower of Brexit and all that, but also a follower of the data investment, the staffing in the back office. Do you still presume that the city will migrate services and staff functions over to continental Europe cities? I think that some are looking at that and probably thinking about contingency planning, but I actually don't believe it's going to happen en masse. I really don't. I think that the City of London is going to continue to thrive. It's got a huge, huge talent pool. People have been here for decades and for years, and we've got great, great centralized support from the regulators and so on and so forth. So I do think they're going to get regulatory equivalents. I think it would be silly for boards and for corporate governance for people not to look at contingency planning, but I don't think it's going to be a total exodus. Eileen Burbridge of Passion Capital Partner talking with our Tom Keene and Paul Sweeney. Amazon shares, by the way, they are higher today as we report this story. Looking at Amazon up now by six-tenths of one percent, up $10.45 in the United States. By the way, so far this year, Amazon shares, they are up by almost 22%. U.S. markets pushing higher across the board here. We've got the S&P up 12 now, a gain of four-tenths of 1%. NASDAQ is up eight-tenths of 1%, the Dow higher by 30 points. Recapping European trading today, the FTSE 100 up by 1%. CAC 40 in Paris up by four-tenths of 1%. The DAX in Germany higher by seven-tenths of 1%. Charlie Pellet in for Guy Johnson and John Farrow. You're listening to The Cable on DAB. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. And welcome back as The Cable continues on DAB. Charlie Pelletin for both Guy and Jonathan Farrow. They've got time off today and we are giving you a brief check of what's happening in U.S. markets right now. S&P up 12 again there of four-tenths of 1%. The Dow up by three-tenths of 1%. NASDAQ pushing higher up by eight-tenths of 1%. A lot of familiar themes for investors to digest today. Of course, uh, ongoing trade issues, economic data out today, and of course, waiting for the ECB decision tomorrow. Also, so we've got a Fed meeting that comes up next week. And joining us now to put it all in context, to sort it all out, Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg News. No, I don't give you too much credit because you know all about everything having to relate to the economy here. Uh, but I want to begin with some uh, the latest tweet of the day, President Trump taking aim at one of his favorite targets, the Federal Reserve. He called U.S. policymakers, quote, boneheads and said Fed Chair Jay Powell is naive. President has urged the Fed to take rates down to zero or less, which, by the way, typically a level for recessions. Michael, first of all, let's update 
our London listeners on what the contemporary policy has been in terms of criticizing the Federal Reserve. It's a no-go area. It's a no-go area. It has been for about 20 years or so. When Bob Rubin came to office as Treasury Secretary in 1995, he convinced Bill Clinton that it didn't do any good to criticize the Fed and that historically the Fed gets its hackles up and maybe pushes back. And it also upsets the markets, and the markets push back, and you don't get what you want. Um, prior to that, there'd been a history of presidents berating Fed chairs, never quite the way that the current president does. I, I can't help but think his mother never told him, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all, because he goes way beyond what previous pre- previous presidents... The, the most famous example was Lyndon Johnson. Uh, brought down uh, William McChesney Martin to the LBJ ranch in Texas. And uh, Martin was thinking of raising interest rates because inflation was starting to rise because we were spending a lot of money on the Great Society domestic programs and the Vietnam War. And so uh, Johnson said, um, four-letter word that I won't say on the air, uh, I've got boys dying in Vietnam and you won't cooperate. And reportedly pushed him up against the wall. And then me and our listeners are now trying to figure out what that four-letter word is without saying it. Does that have to do it was, with barnyards? It, uh, no, it was actually a little bit better. It uh, it invoked um, the the Lord above, sort of, and and his wrath. So um, I'm still at a loss. But <laughs> <laughs> but but okay. So why is it then that it that that it's out of bounds for a president to go after the Federal Reserve and its leaders? Well, the White House makes the argument that it's not that it's okay to criticize the Fed and monetary policy. The Fed worries about two things. One, that its independence actually could be compromised, that Donald Trump is the kind of person who would try to change the law and make it so he could control interest rate policy. The other thing they worry about is, even if that didn't happen, that markets would possibly believe that the Fed was doing the administration's bidding. And therefore, that would interfere with monetary policy transmission and would hurt the Fed's credibility uh, and do damage to their ability to manage monetary policy. So um, that's that's why they don't like it. But they also realize there's no sense getting into a Twitter argument with Donald Trump. And worth worth backing up, though, by the way, who appointed Jay Powell? Uh, That would be one Donald J. Trump, uh, who appointed Powell to a new term on the Fed and as chairman of uh, the Federal Reserve. Uh, So it's it's Trump's baby here. Uh, But he knew what he was getting and uh, at, at the time. And the interesting thing is Trump is all over the lot on this. He accused the Fed of keeping interest rates too low to help elect Barack Obama. Now he wants interest rates lower. Uh, At the time, he wanted interest rates higher. And one of the reasons that he picked Jay Powell was uh, because he thought he might be more pliant on interest rates and and, uh, not raise them as fast as Janet Yellen, who would have probably kept rates lower for longer. So it's really hard to know. And he wants a strong dollar. He doesn't want a strong and, dollar. And then there are the American political implications of all of this because he gets to blame the Federal Reserve if the economy turns south. Well, a lot of people think that um, he can't be that dumb when it comes to economic policy. And so he's got to be thinking through a strategy here. And his strategy is the economy may not perform as well, so I'll set up a straw man that I can blame. And – 
if that's the case, he's he's executing that strategy on a fairly regular basis. And I can tell you that you talk to Fed people over and over again, and this has been an issue for years. You talk to them over and over again, and they say, we do not listen. We go into the meeting room. We don't even talk about politics. We just talk about the economy, and we do the best job that, that we can. And, and I've seen you ask that question in one form or another of various Fed governors over the years, uh, either at Jackson Hole or in your one-on-one with some of the Fed leaders. Without naming names, and maybe it's a dangerous question, off the record, is that their position as well? Yes. I mean, off the record, well, I can't even report off the record. Uh, correct, correct. Uh, right, that. right. And I'm just trying but to figure out where to go with the question. No, I've talked to a number of them, and, and privately, we'll put it that way. They say it makes our job harder because it, it just confuses the issue. People are always asking us now about Donald Trump. But they all say – most people support them and say, don't let the president intimidate you. Just continue to do what's right. They don't, even privately, they don't think it makes any difference to their economic policy decision making. And I get why there is the perception that it makes their job harder because what happens, case in point, next Fed meeting, they do cut rates. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, Donald Trump will be happy. It'll be the rooster claiming credit for the sunrise. Um, the Fed is reacting to the economy, not the president's tweets, but the result is that the president gets something of what he wants. They're definitely not cutting to zero yeah. or below. Well, that's what he wants. Meeting. That's that's what he has decided now that he wants. And the economic implications, if he does go, if the Fed were to magically go to zero, not that that's going to happen. It doesn't appear that the cost of capital is anybody's issue at this point. It is really the trade war uncertainty that has crimped business spending. The president's tax cuts didn't do anything to really stimulate the economy besides a brief burst of consumer spending. They're not helping. Businesses aren't taking advantage of the extra cash. They're using it for buybacks uh, and and dividends. And so um, at this point, uh, a severe rate cut doesn't appear like it would do a lot for the economy. What it would do a lot for is our friends uh, in the city and on Wall Street who would love the free money out there, the excess liquidity sloshing around to go into financial markets. And, of course, uh, the, I think most traders would say, you'll go to zero right now. We're going to have a big bubble. And, uh, but we're going to, as Chuck Prince once said, we're going to dance as long as the music is playing. A 25 basis point cut completely baked in for next week? Yes. No they, shocks, no surprises, no done shocks. deal? Fed doesn't do that anymore, and they've led the markets to believe there's a 25, and they didn't push back at all. And so if they did, it would cause them major headaches and major problems. So now, what, what they're going to do that. And, and so obviously no surprise, but and it's impossible to predict market reaction, but pretty much – any thoughts on what markets may or may not do, depending on when the Fed does come out as expected? You know, I've been looking at, uh, at basically um, a lot of analysis from uh, people on Wall Street, and the general feeling is is that what we've seen going into meetings of both the Fed and the ECB, so maybe watch for this tomorrow, is that markets overreact going in, then back off right beforehand or right afterwards, and so you don't get as big a move as you think you might have had, so that might be something to look for. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot on Fed days when I look at those charts, and that's precisely what happens very often. Coming up, I want to talk a little bit more about the ECB. A little later on in the program, I'm going to be getting into a possible antitrust investigation into Amazon.com with our Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg, a regular on Bloomberg Radio and Television. This is The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson. 
on Bloomberg Radio. And we are back as the cable continues right here on DAB. Thank you very much for joining us. Charlie Pellet uh, in today for uh, Jonathan Farrow, Guy Johnson. They both got the day off. Uh, U.S. markets higher across the board right now. Tenure in the U.S., 1.73%. Uh, looking at gold up five-tenths of 1%. Both crude uh, uh, traded here in New York. Brent crude uh, Brent crude in Europe uh, down 2.9%. West Texas intermediate crude here in New York lower now by 3.1%. Lots going on there. Michael McKee, the dropping crude today, safe to say that. That's all about the easing of tensions and the exit of John Bolton when it comes to the Middle East? Well, the uh, perceived possibility of easing of tensions, uh, we don't know. Uh, Fair enough. It is my understanding that reporters have been called into the Oval Office because Donald Trump is doing something. It's not related to that. But I would imagine that within the next few minutes, we'll get some headlines. Somebody will ask him that question. And that could move oil markets. Yeah. What, what uh, your thoughts tomorrow as we look ahead to the ECB meeting? Obviously going to be extremely closely watched. Let me start with a broad question. How low can they go? Uh, th- that is a, a key question in the sense that there's something called the reversal rate. You get to a point where you're no longer stimulating the economy. You're hurting the economy because rates are so low that everybody stops lending because they're losing money on it. And uh, the banks in Europe will tell you they're already there. And the ECB thinks maybe they can get a little bit more out of it. Rabobank predicting you could go to negative 80 from negative 40 uh, basis points. But um, – the question is, you know, what are you really getting out of it? A number of academic studies out in the last couple of months say negative rates do not stimulate the economy. All right. So, well, Mario Draghi and the ECB, they're extremely smart people. Why would they cut further then, given what you just laid out? Well, I guess they think that they can get something out of it if they do so what they call tiering, which is take some of the money that would be subject to that deposit rate and exempt it. Um what they would love to do is be able to push the banks to pass the costs along to you, the saver, because then you will spend money rather than save it because you put your money in the bank and it just goes away, which doesn't do you any good. Um, but no bank wants to be the first one to do that because then everybody goes to the bank next door. So it's not clear they can get a lot out of that, which is why most analysts surveyed by Bloomberg think that they're going to do – another round of quantitative ease and go back into the business of buying sovereign bonds, maybe some corporate bonds as well. All right, Michael, just a headline I want to pass along to our listeners here in the United States. The uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services says that the Food and Drug Administration is moving to ban flavored e-cigarettes, certainly an ongoing controversy in the U.S. in terms of young people taking up these uh, uh, vaping. And so now we've got the FDA said to be moving to be banning flavored e-cigarettes. Back to the ECB, its decision tomorrow morning, uh, just in terms of uh, individual savers. I'm often wondered, uh, the way banks make money is people, individuals, put money into a bank. What happens to individual consumers if the ECB continues to lower rates? Uh, <laughs> that's the problem. Um, as, I, as I note, um, if they don't pass it along, it's not going to hurt Consumers, they just don't get a benefit out of it. But if they do, if they are forced by business conditions to pass it on to consumers, you could start losing money. Now, there, it, there would be an expected tiering for the smaller, uh, for customers, for the smaller uh, clients. Maybe you have five thousand euros in an account, and they would, they would exempt that level from negative rates. But if you're have a lot of money in the bank, you would probably lose some of it from having it in the bank. And obviously, 
that doesn't do a whole lot for uh, for banks or for customers. All right. Uh, only about 30 seconds left. The high point for me for any Fed meeting is seeing you or any of your Bloomberg colleagues stand up, say, Michael McKee, Bloomberg News, Bloomberg Television, you pop off a question. If you were at the ECB meeting tomorrow morning, what question would you be asking? Uh, my primary question would be, why do you think any of this would work? If this is trade-related and if this is a lack of fiscal stimulus – why is cutting rates and going into QE, lowering interest rates overall, going to do anything for the economy when rates are so low anyway? All right. I want to thank you very much for joining us, Michael McKee. Coming up, we're going to have more on a number of different topics here on Bloomberg, more on the Federal Reserve, and also going to be talking a little bit about Amazon.com. Thank you very much, Michael McKee, for joining us here on The Cable. Wednesday edition, Guy Johnson, John Farrow, off Charlie Pelletin for the two of them. U.S. stocks there higher. You're listening to The Cable on DAB. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. And uh, we thank you very much for joining us here on the Wednesday edition of The Cable. We've got uh, U.S. stocks pushing higher. A story that we're following for you, Uber Technologies, which has generated billions of dollars from the labor of its drivers without the expense of treating them as employees. Uh, California now poised to disrupt that business model and the ride-hailing giant gearing up for a legal fight. Well, as we have been discussing, President Trump is taking aim at one of his favorite targets, and that is the Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C. He has called policymakers, quote, boneheads and said Fed Chair Jay Powell is naive. Earlier today, Bloomberg's David Weston and Alex Steele spoke with Matthew Luzetti, Deutsche Bank chief U.S. economist, and Lisa Erickson of U.S. Bank Wealth Management. I think the underlying story is still one where inflation is running below the Fed's target. Core PCE, which is what they focus on, is only at 1.6% year over year, so 40 basis points below their target. Uh, that doesn't really change. I think uh, you have a Fed that is looking at growth concerns and is also looking at inflation below their target, and both of those things together are leading them in a dovish direction. Uh, Lisa, if you tie the wind together what's happening with the market, uh, even if it's a tingle or more modest, etc., uh, you are still seeing a steeper yield curve. I mean, six basis points in the 210s is very different than we were two weeks ago. Do you need to ride this a little bit more? So we're seeing uh, potentially the... Uh, potential for the yield curve to, to relatively stay flat. And it is actually encouraging that it has uh, moved upward. But generally, again, when we look at the economic data, what we see is slowing trends. And while we've had some starts and stops in terms of some of that data starting to st um, stabilize, we haven't seen a firm movement in that direction. So as long as we get that global growth slowing and also firmly here in the U.S., it's difficult to imagine that you're going to get a strong move in the yield curve either way. Well, now let's get to the brings us to the Fed. And the reason why one of the reasons why Matt is on is he had a really interesting call yesterday uh, about the Fed, saying that we now expect the Fed to cut rates by a further cumulative 100 basis points through the first quarter of next year. Trade developments have mirrored a tipping point. If instead an off ramp remains elusive, the U.S. economy could slide into a mild recession, forcing the Fed to join many of its global peers. Is that like a zero or negative rate call, or is it four and done? So we have four and done. Um, we have 25 basis points next week uh, for the Fed, and so we would have the Fed, Fed funds rate troughing at a bit above 1%. So the policy rate in the U.S. would be above a lot of the global peers. We'll probably see the ECB cut rates a little bit further tomorrow. Um, but I think what we were focused on is 
A lot of the data that we're looking at, the ISM, uh, fell pretty sharply. We're seeing some slowing in the labor market data. The leading indicators for manufacturing and CapEx are weak. And there's some evidence of a spillover to the services sector. And I think in that environment, you need to get some resolution of this trade uncertainty to really put a floor on growth and to see growth actually uh, begin to rebound again. To be clear, I think a premise of what you're saying is you're assuming we won't get a trade deal or any resolution before the election in 2020, which is, by the way, what a lot of people in Washington and Beijing seem to be signaling as well. I think we will not get a, a strong deal that completely removes resolution. However, I think we cannot continue on the, this ultimate path of escalation as well. Um, I think if you end up in that, that path of further escalation, then I think recession risks become real. So to, to that point, if we stay where we are, where there is still a, a tit-for-tat, some exemptions, some not, that's the 100 basis point call as long as it doesn't get worse than that? Yes, I think you need to have a little bit of a pullback. For example, uh, I think we, we would have to... Uh, reassess where we are at if we eventually get the tariffs in December mm. that are hitting key consumer goods. The Fed actually did a, a really nice research piece on this last week. They showed that the trade uncertainty, just the uncertainty, not, not including the tariffs, is a 100 basis point drag on the level of GDP uh, over the next year. And that is just the uncertainty that we've had so far. So that, that's a big hit to the economy. So, Lisa, let's bring you in here for your views on this subject. First of all, if you have, if you knew today, we're not going to get resolved, it's not going to get worse in terms of trade with the U.S. and China. What would that tell you about recession possibilities? We think the uh, possibility of recession right now is still low. So our base case is that this is a mid-cycle slowing adjustment. And the reason why is why even though you see a downtrend in many of the indicators, and we monitor over 700 indicators globally on our proprietary health check, um, if you look again at the absolute levels, they would indicate that we're not uh, far enough along to go into recession. So if you think of the economy as a treadmill, really what we're moving is uh, from a level of sort of eight on the treadmill to now we're probably at more of a six. So, so let's talk about that yield curve for a moment because the two tens, as, as Alex just said, now is in positive territory, narrowly but six. positive territory. But it's six, all six basis points. But the three-month tenure, which some people say is the one you really should be paying attention to, is still negative. It's gotten better, right, Matt? But it's still negative. Should we be concerned about that as a recession indicator? Yeah, the Fed has done a lot of good research on this. We, we've done some. Uh, out of those indicators, the 10-year, the three-month spread they've shown is, is a bit of a better indicator. They have something that they call their, their forward spread, uh, which is in looking at forward three-month yields minus the spot three-month yield. Both of those remain deeply inverted. Uh, I would add to that, we've looked at uh, consumer confidence. And if you look at the gap between the University of Michigan and the conference board, it's actually very highly correlated with the 210 spread. So that is a measure from consumer confidence that is also flashing a little bit in terms of um, recession risks rising. Uh, the infamous tweet of the morning, you already talked about it with Marty, had to do with President Trump talking about the Fed yet again, saying that we should get our interest rates down to zero uh, or less, then we should start to refinance our debt. Interest costs could be brought way down. Um, is that in the cards? I mean, literally, like, what would we have to see to get interest rates into zero or negative territory? And would that actually be a good thing? So I think it would be a response to a recessionary-type scenario. But more extreme than uh, than sort of a slowing growth scenario. More extreme than a slowing mm -hmm. growth scenario. Our, our baseline is a slowing growth scenario where the Fed cuts by one percentage point more. You get uh, some resolution on trade, but not a big trade deal. That's enough to put a floor on growth and then eventually see growth pick up uh, late next year. Further escalation, you know, the getting to zero is a, a recessionary-type scenario. And in the U.S., at least Fed officials have looked like they're not 
uh, interested or willing to move into negative rates at this point. A great conversation. Matthew Lozetti, Deutsche Bank Chief U.S. Economist, and Lisa Erickson of U.S. Bank Wealth Management. They were interviewed this morning on Bloomberg Television. Again, repeating our earlier story, President Trump has called vaping a problem. Now his health secretary says the U.S. government will force companies to remove flavored vaping products from the market after reports of hundreds of American cases of a mysterious illness related to e-cigarette devices. I'm Charlie Pellet. want to thank you very much for spending the hour with us uh, here on the cable on DAB. John Farrell, Guy Johnson, they'll be back tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.